0: Thessalonians, if you are here and you're a visitor and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you, and if you'll read it, you're welcome to take it home with you. Also, I'm sure everyone has a phone, you can Google it, First Thessalonians, chapter 1. So we're going to start by reading the text for this morning, and then we'll dig into the sermon. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. If you look on your handouts if you have them. If not, maybe you look at your neighbor's handout. You're going to find on the back page, it's there every week, uh, the gospel message. I'm going to read that to you now. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life God requires, and to die on the cross in place for our sin. On the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of their sin And trust solely in him for salvation. Now, when it comes to gospel presentations, there's kind of there's a a long version, a medium version, and a short version. Uh, That's like the medium version. The short version is just like when you quote John 3:16: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him should have everlasting life. There's also a, a longer version that really spans the entire Bible, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. You see, the gospel story begins long before Jesus came to the world, long before you came to the earth, long before Jesus came to the earth, long before Moses gave the Ten Commandments, long before God created the world and the cosmos. The Bible tells us that before the foundations of the world were laid, God had a plan. And part of that plan was to choose a people for himself, to set his love on a people, to have a people to be his own. This is the doctrine of election. Now, the Bible tells us all of that in certain places in Scripture. We just read it in Ephesians It tells us the the kind of before the story, the prologue, but it also tells us the epilogue. It tells us what things are going to be like when, when all is said and done and the story has come to a conclusion. In Revelation, for example, John tells us about what this elect body is going to be like in heaven, and he says this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they, they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's going to sound way cooler in heaven when there's like an infinite multitude saying that. I'm doing my best to kind of give you what I got here. Now, in that age, it will not be difficult to know who the elect are right? They'll all be dressed the same. They'll all be waving palm branches and singing. and They'll all be in the same place, doing the same thing, worshiping the same God. But in this age, we're not wearing white robes, we're not all in the same place at the same time, doing the same thing, where the, where the sheep and the goat are corralled together in the same field, it's not easy to know who is chosen by God and who isn't. Charles Spurgeon once quipped that God was not pleased to stamp the elect in their foreheads or to put any distinctive mark upon them. So if everyone's not walking around wearing white robes and waving palm branches, if we don't all have the word elect in big red letters stamped on our forehead, then how can we know that we have been chosen by God? Or maybe a better question would be, is it even possible for us to know? that we have been chosen by God. Well, based on what Paul has to say to the Thessalonians in this morning's text, I think it is possible for us to know. Look at verse 4. Paul says, For we, and that we there is him and his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, when Paul says, we know, I know. I don't think what he intends to communicate there is a sort of uh, infallible knowledge. Like he knows absolutely, certainly, 100% positively that the Thessalonian Christians are elected. I don't think he intends to say that I know that you're elect in the same way that God knows who is and who isn't elect. I think what he's trying to do here is communicate a sense of confidence, uh, a sense of certainty. You know, like if I were to tell Amber, baby, I know you'll never be unfaithful to me. I'm not saying that I know that infallibly, but I'm saying I have the utmost confidence that you are a good wife and you'll never cheat. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate here, confidence. Now why, then, is Paul so confident in this calling and election of these Thessalonian Christians? Well, that's what this morning's sermon is all about. But before we dig in, let me tell you two things. Number one, remember where we are. Paul last week said, hey, I'm thankful for you guys, and when I go to God in prayer, I tell him all the time just how thankful I am for you. And this week is a continuation of that. He's saying, one of the reasons why I thank God for you is because I'm confident that you are chosen by God. So that's the context to keep in mind. Number two, uh, if you look at the second half of verse five, where Paul says, uh, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I'm not really going to talk about that verse this morning, because Paul actually unpacks that a little bit later in chapter 2, so I would kind of be stealing my own thunder for the sermon in the week's coming. So uh, with that in mind, let me just go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the sermon together. Father, any good that can be done in the life of your people this morning can only be done if your word is administered to your people. So help me to be faithful in what I say here today. Help me to be accurate. Help me to be clear. Help me to help your people worship in a spirit of truth. And Lord, your word will only do us good if our hearts receive what you have to say. So would you make our hearts supple? Would your spirit prepare us, incline our ears to listen to what you have to say to us? And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Now, if you look on the front of your worship guides, you'll see it there at the very bottom. We have a catechism question. Now, I don't know if you read this every week. It's there every week, and then there's a new one every week. If you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church, you may not know what a catechism is. Or if you did grow up in the church, but you grew up in a church uh, that just didn't take theology very seriously, you may not know what a catechism is. Uh, simply put, a catechism is a tool that's intended to teach using a question and answer format. And it's used in the church, and it has been for uh, millennia, as a primarily as a way of teaching new converts and children the truths of the gospel, okay? It's just a very easy way to learn and retain information, right? So... The reason why I'm talking to you about catechisms is because the catechism question that I have on the front of your service guide is actually how I'm going to give you the main point of the sermon this morning. I'm going to give it to you in the form of a catechism question. So here it is. How can we know that we are chosen by God? Some note takers are confused right now. Do Do you write that down in your notes? Do you cut this out and paste it into your notes later? Okay, that's the question. How can we know that we are chosen by God? The answer, by the working of the Spirit's power in our lives. Now, remember, I'm not saying how can we know infallibly. Maybe another way to say this is how can we be confident that we are chosen by God, in the same way that Paul is confident in the election of the Thessalonian Christians? Now, I'm getting this question directly from verses 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, I know, brothers, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, right? That's the question. And then verse 5, he says, he explains how he knows. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. By the way, when he says in power and in the Holy Spirit, I don't understand him to be referring to two distinct things. I think he's saying by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. So Paul is saying, listen, I know that you're elect because when we came and preached the gospel, the spirit of God was very obviously powerfully present in our preaching. And then we saw the way you responded to that. You became imitators of us, and the same power that we had, we saw in your life. And that's the reason why we're so confident that you've been chosen by God. Now, we come from various theological backgrounds in this room. Some of us come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. Some of us may come from a Mormon background. Some of us from Protestant backgrounds, but even then, you could be a charismatic, you could be this, you could be that. Let me tell you, most often when I come to verses like this in Scripture, when people hear about the Holy Spirit's power, what they tend to think about first is signs and wonders and miracles. That makes sense. Jesus did a lot of miracles. The book of Acts is full of miracles. The apostles did miracles to testify to their apostleship. Paul himself did many signs and wonders. But I want to tell you this morning that I don't think that when Paul is talking about the power of the Spirit in the life of this church, that he's talking about signs and wonders and miracles. I think he's talking about something even better, something even more powerful, I think he's talking about conversion and all of the good things that flow out of conversion in our Christian lives. Now, I'm going to spend the majority, the first half of this morning's sermon, arguing for that interpretation of power. I'm I'm going to spend so much time on it, trying to argue that point, because if you misunderstand what Paul means when he talks about power, you're going to misunderstand the whole point of the sermon. So I just really want to make sure that we are on the same page. Now, before I make this argument, uh, I want to anticipate a potential argument from you, the listener. You might be sitting there thinking, well, Sean, why do you want to strip the Bible from from its miraculous? Why do you want to remove the miraculous from the pages of Scripture? Why do you want to remove the supernatural? Well, friends, I don't. I believe in miracles. I believe in the working of the Spirit and, and, and for him to do that in any way that he so chooses. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he did signs and wonders here on the earth. That he was resurrected bodily from the grave, and that he ascended into heaven. I believe that miracles still exist and happen today. So I have no ulterior motive in trying to push for a different interpretation of power than what you might expect. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you three arguments. Uh, the first argument is the book of Acts argument. The second argument is the First Corinthians' argument. And the third argument is the context argument. Now, the first two are very short. They're going to be like little blips on the radar. The third one is going to be where the meat of it is. You should also know that I've organized these three points in order of like most convincing, or excuse me, least convincing to like most convincing. So with that being said, let's dive in. The book of Acts argument. Uh, As you know, uh, Paul's time with the church in Thessalonica, when he, what he's addressing here when he says, when we were with you and the Spirit was alive and well, that is all recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts 17. And when you read this account in Acts 17, you don't see any hint of miracles or signs or wonders. And that's significant because Luke is quick to record miracles and signs and wonders in the book of Acts. So turn with me, please, to Acts 17, save your place in 1 Thessalonians, Just turn with me back to the book of Acts. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews... Luke records after that is just about the insurrection in the city, the mob that came about in light of Paul's preaching. So when Luke records Paul's time in the book of Acts, all he talks about is the ministry of the word and then the fruit of conversion. No signs and no wonders. Uh, I know what you may be saying. Sean, I know my logical fallacies. That seems like an argument from silence. Just because he didn't say it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Okay, Mr. Logical fallacy guy. Let's move on to the next argument and see if that helps. The 1 Corinthians argument. Now, my argument here is based on the fact that Paul uses this same kind of spirit power language in 1 Corinthians. And when he uses it there, he is once again not referring to miracles, but instead is referring to the miracle of conversion. So, just listen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He's talking about his time with him. He says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So when I was with you, you saw the power came with me. Same kind of language from 1 Thessalonians. A little bit later in chapter 4, he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The same power that you saw while I was with you. Okay, well, what power is this? Well, as it so happens, Luke very kindly, very wisely recorded Paul's time in Corinth in the book of Acts. So let's go back now to Acts chapter 18. I left my Bible open, so I'm already there. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come down from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ... Excuse me, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. That must have been a huge breakthrough for Paul. He must have felt so encouraged. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. All right. Once again, Paul goes into the synagogue. He opens up the scriptures. He teaches. He preaches. He reasons. People are converted. That is the power of that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians. And that's the same language that he uses in 1 Thessalonians. Now, on to the third argument, the argument from immediate context. So far this morning, we've been dealing with verses 4 and 5 and part of 6, where you see the main point of the text. But as you read the rest of this morning's text, all the way down to verse 10, you see that Paul himself actually explains what this gospel power is. Let's begin by looking at verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, what we see here is that Paul is saying that the Thessalonians were empowered to receive the word even in the midst of suffering and persecution. This is an evidence of the Spirit's power. Jesus said so himself. Jesus knew that these days were going to come, and he taught about this somewhat in one of his parables. Do you remember the parable of the sower? From Mark 4. If you weren't here when I preached on it or if you're not familiar with it, let me give you a refresher. Jesus tells this parable about a man. The man could be God. It could be an evangelist. Sometimes it's up for debate. But the man goes out to a field and he sows seed. That seed is supposed to be the word of God and the seed falls on soil. The soil is the heart of those who hear the word of God. And he talks about how there's different kinds of soil and three different kinds of soil are bad soil and the, the seed doesn't take and One kind of soil is a good soil, and the seed takes. Well, when Jesus is talking about one of the bad kinds of soil, he says it like this. He says, some seed are like seeds sown on rocky places, where they hear the word and at once receive it with joy. That's good, right? But since they have no root, they only last a short time. But when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So Jesus has a category of people who think themselves to be converts until they come into a little bit of contact with persecution and suffering on behalf of the gospel, and then they flee, they run back to the world. This is what Paul was worried about for the Thessalonians. He saw what happened when the gospel began to take root in that city, how the mob formed, how the church was attacked. He had to flee for his own life. This is the reason why he sent Silas and Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica because he was worried that they were going to succumb to the pressures of the world, the suffering and the persecution, and go back to the temples, go back to the synagogue. But when Timothy came back to Paul in Corinth and told him how the Thessalonians were doing, he said, actually, they're doing great. They're persevering. The the persecution hasn't stopped them. Not only so, but it seems here that they are receiving it in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's a significant phrase. Because whatever joy that Jesus is talking about in that parable, it's not the joy of the Holy Spirit. Those who receive the word with, with something that appears to be joy. But it's not real joy. But the Thessalonians, they've received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you know that because it's not only persisting, but it's also reproducing. It's echoing out. It's going out to the whole world. So, here Paul pictures the perseverance of the Thessalonians like a loud siren that echoes the power of God's word everywhere. That's what he says here, you see? He says, everywhere. In uh, verse eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. I don't think he means to literally every place, you know, Ponta. I, I think what he means is kind of like you spill milk, and you're like, oh, the milk is everywhere, right? That he just means it's 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 just gone out, just further than you might even imagine. Their testimony is so significant, according to Paul in verses eight and nine, that he feels like he doesn't have to say anything about it. He's like, y'all heard? Y'all know? Y'all seen what what my people in Thessalonica have been doing? It's obvious. This gospel gossip is spreading like wildfire throughout the region. In verse 5, Paul says that when he and his co-workers showed up and started preaching the gospel, they showed up with real spirit-wrought power, not the power of empty words. Paul is well qualified to speak about empty words. You remember that before Jesus came and knocked Paul on his butt, he was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul knows what it's like for people to traffic in religious speak that is worthless and powerless. He is familiar with the arguments about the minutia of the law. Arguments about which school of rabbi has a better interpretation of what some other previous school of rabbis had to say about some obscure theological matter. Paul is well acquainted with these arguments about silly myths and genealogies. But it wasn't just amongst his fellow Jews and Pharisees that he heard these words without power. Paul's well educated, well traveled. He's seen the same thing in the pagan world. If you remember, just before sitting down to write this letter, he had been in Athens. And when he was in Athens, he was in a city that was just a cemetery of idols and dead philosophies. Right? Luke has this to say about the city of Athens when Paul was there. It says, he says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's what Paul saw in Athens. Just words, words, words. Endless words. Empty words. Powerless words. But when he showed up with the gospel in Thessalonica, it was God's word that demonstrated true power. God's word brings galaxies into existence. God's word breathes life into dust. God's word raises men from the dead and draws sinners into salvation. God's word does what we've seen him do in the life of this local church. The words of kings and politicians, they may drip with honey, maybe, maybe they don't drip with honey quite so much in this election, but they tend to drip with honey, but in reality they are bitter and weak and ultimately unsatisfying. The words of philosophers and teachers may seem wise to the masses here and now, you can feel it in the air but ultimately they will prove to be impotent. The words of this world promise everything and deliver nothing except death and disappointment. But the word of the Lord, friends, is pure power. My word, says the Lord in Isaiah 55, 11, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that, which I, all that I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Heaven and earth will pass away, says the God of the Bible, but my words will never pass away. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God stands forever. The God of the universe, friends, is omnipotent. That means that he is all-powerful. That means that everything he sets out to do, he accomplishes. And the way that he accomplishes these things, the way that he brings his purposes to pass is through his word. I distinguish the end from the beginning, says the Lord God, in ancient times from what is still to come, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. So when Paul saw these Thessalonians respond to the preaching of God's word and go from worshiping idols to believing in Jesus, as he describes in verse 9, he saw the power of God in them. And when these Thessalonians kept on believing the gospel, clinging to Christ, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, he saw the power of God in them. And when these Thessalonians and their faith reverberated out to the surrounding churches and strengthened all of God's people by their testimony, he saw the power of God in them. And he has no qualms with saying, I know that you are chosen by God. He was convinced. He was convinced in God's power, and the power of God's word. Are you convinced? When you think about all the words that you consume, all the words that you study, all the words that you utilize in this life, is it evidence that you perhaps don't really trust in the power of God's word? When you're looking for personal change in your life, whose words do you go to first? Do you ask God what his word has to say about your marriage, about your addiction, about your singleness? When you're trying to ask yourself how to find solutions to all of the problems that ail this world, where do you look first? Do you look to see what the local excuse me, the recent science says, what the recent socio-philosophers have to say, what are you looking at first? I'm not saying that other people's words don't matter and that they're not helpful. Common grace is real. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. I'm asking, where do you begin? And in whom do you trust? Where do you persist? Even as you're just trying to think thoughts about God and your own salvation and your relationship with God, where do you begin? Do you start with, Good books like I recommend. Do you start here or do you start here? Do you start with the catechisms and the creeds and the councils and the church fathers? Or do you start here with your father in heaven? When you're trying to evangelize your brother, your sister, your friend, your mom, your co-worker, your boss, your employee, do you begin by trying to exercise the Socratic method? Are you trusting in your logic and your reasoning? to lead people out of their spiritual blindness and death? Or do you you trust God's word, which has a proven track record of taking men and women out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? Friends, Paul was convinced that God's word produced real spirit-wrought power in the lives of God's people. As a church, are we convinced of that? Where are we pouring our time and our talent and our treasure? What do we gather around? What do we sing about? What do we pray about? What are we investing our whole selves into? On a Sunday morning service, friend, if you're a visitor here, maybe you thought this morning was boring. I don't know. Maybe you thought it was weird. You're certainly going to think that this sermon is long. But I wonder if you've noticed that everything about this sermon is not intended to highlight anything other than God's word. And for God's people, the thing is, that's enough. It's more than enough. It's all that we need. Because we know that the only thing that can change us, the only thing that will lead us home, is God's word. So we are content to let it do its work. And we just try to not get in the way. Okay, now, back to our catechism question. How can we know that we are chosen by God? Well, by the working of the Spirit's power in our Lives. Friends, I know that our church has been through a lot this year. We haven't faced what the Thessalonians have faced. We haven't suffered what they suffered. But we've been through a lot. Actually, for the last several years, we've been through a lot. And right when I thought we were kind of coming out of a, a valley, you know, the coronavirus, which was not one problem, but like 17 problems hiding in one problem. And then after that, the flood and the denomination and the building and It's been a challenging year for us as a church. But I want you to know that I see real evidence of the Spirit's power in our lives here together. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your pastor. I'm saying that because I think it's true. I've seen us fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit that Paul commands in Ephesians chapter four. I've seen us respond to the challenge of separation with a spirit of brotherly love. I've seen us accommodate each other's consciences. I've seen us be patient with one another. I've seen us forgive one another. I've seen us band together with full confidence as we face uh, challenges about this journey that God has us on as a local congregation. I've seen God's power in the life of our church. Now, I don't know just how far the word of the Lord has sounded forth from us as a church during this time and what we've gone through, but I do know that if you've been here, just more than a day, if you've kind of breathed in the air, if you've experienced the atmosphere of this church, you have to know that what I'm saying is true. And I am thankful. Now, with that in mind, I'm about to do a little bit of a herky-jerky transition into the latter half of the sermon. It's going to feel a little disjointed. Maybe I can iron out the wrinkles here uh, with an illustration. Here's my best job with that, okay? You ready? All right. If you know anything about food, then you know that uh, a, a, a really good meal usually has like a protein and then it has like a starch and a vegetable, right? Now, the protein, the meat, it's supposed to be the star of the show. So, if you think like steak and potatoes and broccoli, right? The steak, the 16 ounce ribeye steak, it's supposed to be the star of the show. The potatoes should be good, the broccoli should be good, and I know that some of you out there are complete weirdos, and you wish that there was no steak on the plate, and you just want to eat the broccoli. Aside from that, most normal people think that the steak is the star of the show. Well, I think in the first half of the sermon, I've tried to give you a steak. Uh, Hopefully, it tasted like a well-aged steak at a five-star restaurant, not like a well-done Waffle House steak with A1 on top, okay? Okay. Having said that, I do think that there are some uh, vegetables and potatoes left over from the text that we need to talk about. So I want to give those to you in what is basically just a, a couple of miscellanies, okay? some miscellaneous points that I want to draw out from the text. Um, and let me tell you the reason why I'm doing this. The doctrine of election uh, is kind of the main thing that we're talking about this morning. And I don't talk about that very much because we do expositional preaching in the life of this church, which means I'll just start at the beginning of the book and work all the way through. And what that means is that I don't talk about my hobby horses. I don't, you know, talk about whatever I want to talk about on every Sunday. I just let God's word, if it comes up in the word, then we'll talk about it. If it doesn't come up in the word, then we will not talk about it. So since we're here and election is here, there are a couple things in this text that I want to point out to you, the broccoli and potatoes. So. I don't know if you would consider these points, but sure, why not? Let's let's call them additional points, Katie. Encouragement in election is the first subpoint in the second half of the sermon. Encouragement in election. The topic of election can be really divisive in the life of the church, and it really shouldn't be. It's a doctrine that's clearly taught in Scripture. Nevertheless, if you want to like split a denomination or split a church, you just throw out the word like predestination and election, and you just watch Christians fight, tear each, other eyes, tear each other's eyes out. Um, it's pretty ironic that we respond that way, considering that the vast majority of, to- of the time that the doctrine of election is brought up in the Bible, it's brought up as a means of encouragement. It's supposed to encourage Christians who are weary, who are troubled, who are suffering. That's how it's talked about in this morning's sermon. It's kind of the same thing with eschatology. You know, we love to argue, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial, when's the rapture? How does the trumpet sound? But in scripture, no one's ever arguing about it. As a matter of fact, everything that's eschatological, in time stuff, in the book of Revelation, it's all meant to be an encouragement to Christians who are suffering under a hand of persecution. You think about election, it's the same thing. In Romans 28, all those whom he foreknew, which is just another word for election, he predestined to be adopted. And then all those whom he calls, he justifies, and all those he justifies, he glorifies, right? All of that he's saying to some Christians as a means of encouragement. He's trying to say, God's never going to let go of you, so don't worry. If that's true of the way that scripture talks about election, friends, then let it be true of us as well. Don't let yourself get caught up in in silly arguments, debates online, where you end up tearing down other Christians, questioning their salvation, mocking them for their lack of biblical understanding, you know, and just being all kinds of unhelpful and unkind and uncharitable. Let's strive to, if at all possible, bring this up in the same spirit that we see Scripture bring it up, as a means of strengthening the body, not tearing it down. Okay, number two, election into a family. Election into a family. If you've been here for a while, maybe you've wondered why I am always, 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 talking about how what we read in our Bibles applies to the church. Maybe you think it's like my hobby horse, right? Like you think like, you know, Piper, he's the joy in God guy. And this guy, he's the missions guy. Well, Sean is like the church guy. And so he's always going to talk about the church. Well, maybe that's true, but I I honestly don't think it is. I think the reason why I talk so much about the church is because the Bible talks so much about the church, I think you see it on almost every page of the New Testament, and oftentimes several times on the same page in the New Testament. This morning's text, for example, has two instances of corporate language built into what we have studied. So, for example, notice that Paul refers to the Thessalonians as brothers. Verse 4 For we know brothers. That's not a colloquialism, you know, kind of like, you know, you're talking to some guy that you see at Moe's Barbecue. Hey, bro, that's not the way he's using that term. It's a loaded term. It's a significant term for Paul. Paul has spent his whole life as a Jew, where he thinks the household of God is only composed of other Jews. Now, in light of the mystery being revealed to him in the revelation of the gospel, he understands that Gentiles have been brought into the church, this church in Thessalonica, as we read from Acts 17. It's composed of Jews who were converted and Gentiles who were converted. So as Paul writes to them, he's using family language to them. He's telling the Gentiles, you are my brother. This is world-changing stuff. It's mind-blowing stuff. Just a year or two ago, it would have been shocking and offensive for any Jew to ever hear that language or use that language in reference to a Gentile. But Paul is saying it here to these Christians. You see, just a little bit before that, in verse 3, look at the language that Paul uses there. He says, remembering before our God and Father. Paul is saying, he's not just my God, he's your God. You've been grafted in. You've been adopted into the family. He's not just the God of the Jews, he's the God of all nations. For Paul, election is about unity And it's about family. It's about the church. So when you think about the doctrine of election, it's not wrong for you to think about election in terms of your own soul and your own salvation, but it is not in keeping with the fullness of this doctrine for you to only think about election in terms of yourself. You should expand your horizons and come to think about election corporately and what God is not just doing with you, but in the life of the church. You are not the apple of God's eye. The church, the bride of Christ, is the apple of God's eye. Point number three, kind of. You're calling an election. You're calling an election. Earlier, I said that election is almost always brought up as a means of encouragement. Well, here's where that almost comes into play. You should know that sometimes election is brought up as a means of calling us to self-examination. In 2 Peter, the apostle tells his readers to strive to make your calling and election sure. Say that in a little bit more modern English. Make sure that you really are elect. How do you do that? You can't go back to the foundations of the world and make sure that God... Chose you then. How do you make your calling and election sure? Well, this is what he means. He means don't presume upon God's grace. Don't take God's grace for granted. Just because you think you believed in the past does not mean that you are, in fact, a Christian. Because I'm in Decatur, Alabama, I just want to say that again. Just because you believed in the past does not mean that you are today, in the present, a Christian. Jesus talked about this very thing in the parable of the sower. Do you remember? He talked about someone who received the word with joy. And in that moment, whatever that counterfeit joy that they thought, what they thought they were experiencing, they thought that they were Christians. If you would have asked them, are you a Christian? Have you believed? They would say, yes, I am, and yes, I have. But then they go back to the world. The fruit of election, the evidence of election, is not that you have at one point perceived yourself to have believed in the gospel the question is not did I ever believe the gospel because our faith is subjective our experience of our faith is subjective it's possible that you look back on your faith and doubt even though it was genuine it's also possible that you look back confidently on your profession of faith when you shouldn't because it wasn't real it was just an emotional experience you ever been to a church like that the way the lights are set up the way they play the music, the way the pastor preaches, the cadence of his voice, everything from beginning to end about the experience on a Sunday morning is meant to lead you down an emotional path, which may in fact have nothing to do with you repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you went down to the altar and you cried a million tears and you said a prayer and you wrote the date in your Bible and you felt really sad about sin and really happy about God in that moment. All of that could be wrong. It could be false. You could be deceived. The Bible has this massive category for people who are deceived. So the question is, how do I know that I'm not deceived? The answer, Jesus gave it back in Mark chapter 4. In the Parable there, the fourth kind of soil that he talks about is the true soil, the soil that actually receives the word. We could say it's the soil that is elect. And this is what he says about that soil. He says, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. I know that some of us really struggle with the question of our election It weighs on us. Can God really love me? Has he really loved me? And it's at this point that I really want, on one hand, to make you feel encouraged, comforted. But on the other hand, I want you to know that it's good that you wrestle with that. It's good that you struggle in some sense with that. It's good that you stop and look at your life and you go, man, I hope this is real to me. That's one of the ways that you make your calling and election sure that should cause you to stop and step back and look at your life and go, am I bearing fruit? This kind of preaching is sometimes thought of as, uh, to put it lightly, unhelpful by some Christians. Critics of the kind of sermon that I'm preaching to you right now, particularly this last point, they'll say, Sean, no, we can't look at ourselves and our fruit and our experiences to have any kind of confidence in our salvation, we have to look at the finished work of Christ and look at that alone for our confidence in salvation. Well, I would just respond to that with God's word, which specifically tells us that we cannot only look at the cross, but we also have to examine our lives. We have to be fruit inspectors. That's what Peter says. Make your calling and election sure. If you've ever driven a stick shift before, then you know uh, it's all about balance, right? If you push too hard with your right foot on the gas, you're just going to rev the engine, you know? Or if you let up too slowly with your left foot, you're going to pop the clutch. Is that not right? Something bad is going to happen. I don't know anything about cars. (laughs) Feather the pedals is what I'm saying here. Well, the same thing is true with looking at Christ and his finished work on the cross, and looking at your life and examining it for fruit. You keep one eye on Christ, one eye on your own life, and you make sure that you actually have come to believe that you're not deceived. I think God describes this kind of balanced vision various places throughout Scripture, but just listen to the language that Paul uses in Philippians. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Same kind of thing, make your calling and election sure. So it's like, oh no, that doesn't seem very balanced. But then he goes on and he says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So even your ability to examine your your own life, the fruit of your life, even your ability to do that is undergirded and empowered by God's grace. So friends, calling you to examine your lives for spiritual fruit to make sure that you actually are chosen of God is not some kind of legalism. It's not some kind of anti-cross preaching. It's actually just another form of grace. So rest in that grace. Now, just got through telling you that I'm not obsessed with the church, but I'm about to make one more application point with the church. Talking out of both sides of my mouth here. You should know that this kind of inspection, this kind of making your calling and election sure, uh, it's, it's not something that you are intended to do alone. It's not something that you're called to do in a vacuum. God intends for this kind of fruit inspection to happen in the context of community in the local church. Let me explain by giving you an example. Mr. Deceived and Mr. Despairing. We'll start with the deceived brother. The deceived brother is the one who is confident in his faith, but he should not be. Maybe he believes some abhorrent doctrine or is living in some unrepentant sin. Somebody this week told me that they were having a conversation with their coworker, and their co-worker was like, yeah, dude, I'm a Christian. And, and the church member was like, oh, well, where do you go to church? He was like, oh, I don't go to church. And he was like, oh, okay. And he's like, weren't you saying that you live with your girlfriend and that you guys you know, do stuff you're not supposed to do? He was like, yeah. But you say you're a Christian. Yes. Okay, this is Mr. Deceived. Either way, whether it's about doctrine or about how he's living, he is, has already or is about to shipwreck his faith. Now, he can try to examine his own life and see his own blind spots, but how often can you see your own blind spots? Never. That's why they're called blind spots. But if that brother came to this church, he started gathering with us, started building relationships with us. He started getting into his life a little bit, started calling him out a little bit, started showing him some scripture a little bit, calling him to accountability. Well, maybe then he would be, begin to see that he is deceived. You see how that works? Community. Now, there's the despairing brother. This is the one who should be confident in his faith, but he's always doubting, always fearing, always feeling like, surely I'm not good enough for God to love me. He can never see any fruit in his life. <coughs> the, spirit, the despairing brother has spiritual body dysmorphia. You know what body dysmorphia Like the bodybuilders, they have it. They're like 380 pounds, 0% body fat, just raw granite rhinoceros jacked muscle, okay? They look in the body and they see like the body of a 12-year-old girl, you know? They just, they don't see what's really there. Well, that's kind of what this persistently doubting brother is like. No matter how much God is doing in his life, no matter how much sanctification has taken place, he just can't quite see it. But if he's a member of a local church... Well, now there's a real opportunity for encouragement because we can look at this brother's life and we can find evidences of grace like we talked about last week and we can see things that we should be thankful for and then we can make it a point of telling him and whenever he doubts and despairs, we can say, no, brother, don't trust your own subjective experience of your faith. Trust me. I love you. I'm gonna tell you the truth and I'm telling you that you do belong to Jesus because I see it in your life. The church is extremely important for this work that God has called us to. So brothers and sisters, may we be faithful in doing that so that we can all look at one another and think about the life of this church and say along with Paul, I know that we have been chosen and loved by God. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We repent for the ways that we haven't followed you faithfully as we should this week. And we ask you for more grace. Help us to do better as we leave this place in representing your name and loving the body and preaching the gospel. And Lord, would you please come quickly and take us home? Amen. Please stand together.